This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust. I'm Dougal Stevenson. In this program, Bill Southworth reports on two Otago Medical School graduates who ended up running their own countries. Gregor Campbell looks at an early developer and entrepreneur who faced sexual assault charges. And Judy Southworth details the history of orphanages in Dunedin. Otago Medical School is well known for the quality of its medical graduates. But not all who've graduated stick to purely medical careers. Bill Southworth has been looking at two who went on to become the Prime Ministers of their own countries. Former Fijian Prime Minister Ratu Sakamasesimara and former Cook Islands Prime Minister Sir Tom Davis were both former students of the Otago Medical School. In Ratu Mara's case, the word Ratu roughly translates as chief, it was always assumed he had a leadership role to play in a South Pacific homeland. When Fiji was still a British colony, he was born into a high chiefly family in the Lao Islands. With the twilight of empire fast approaching, the British were planning for a smooth transition to independence. London believed Fiji would need a competent leader, and the tall, athletic and intelligent young aristocrat seemed like a good prospect. Thus, from an early age, Ratu Mara was groomed for higher things. In the 1940s, however, Ratu Mara decided he wanted to be a doctor and enrolled at the Otago Medical School. Of this, he would later say, My time at the Otago Medical School I always thought of as the best years of my life. I played a lot of sport, I made a lot of friends, and I was able to get through my exams without much difficulty. I eventually played for Otago in cricket and rugby. In athletics, I got a New Zealand university's record for the high jump and won the drinking blue in Dunedin. I created a record of 1.8 seconds, which stood for some time. But before he completed his medical degree, he received what he described as a bolt out of the blue, a letter from his great-uncle Ratu Salala Sukuna. It summoned him home to begin training as a future leader of Fiji. Ratu Salala had been discussing the future of his young nephew with the warden of Wadham College, Oxford, who said Ratu Mara would be useful for Fiji if he left medicine and studied economics instead. By the time he reached Oxford, there had been another sea change. It was decided it would be more useful for him to do a three-year degree in modern history. When this was completed, he was sent on another course, which trained him to be a colonial administrator. His first post back in Fiji was as a district officer in the Nauvoo district, near Pacific Harbour, which is about an hour's drive west of the Fiji capital, Suva. He also doubled as a local magistrate. Surprisingly, I had no sense here in the 50s that the colonial period had to end. We thought we were not going to become independent. We were part of the Queen's Regnum. We were happy. Why should we change things? I belonged to the school that believed we should not be parted from the United Kingdom, and there were countries like the Isle of Man and the Channel Islands who were on their own, and yet they were part of the UK. Our first reaction was that we should adopt that status. We said, why should we? We ceded our islands to the British. As far as we're concerned, we've given authority. How can we bring it back? 
This is not chiefly. Others in Fiji did not feel that way, especially the hundreds of thousands of Indians whose ancestors had been taken to Fiji as indentured labour to work on the sugar plantations. They had been agitating in the United Nations to give Fiji independence. The British bowed to the inevitable and the process of decolonisation was begun. Rautumara became the leader of the newly formed Alliance Party, a party overwhelmingly made up for Fijians, and the Indians formed their own Federation Party. After independence in 1970, Rautumara's Alliance Party won the first election, and, winning subsequent elections, he ruled the country for the next 15 years. There were tensions. The Indian population increased until it was slightly larger than that of the Fijians, who came to believe, rightly or wrongly, that they were about to be swamped in what they regarded as their country. When the alliance was defeated by Dr Timothy Bavandra's Labour Party in 1987, the new government was only allowed to rule for a month. Soldiers, led by Lieutenant Colonel Sidavini Rambuka, entered Parliament and arrested the new government at gunpoint. The mutineers then played on Fijian fears of Indian domination, although the new Labour Prime Minister and half his cabinet were native Fijians. Rautumara was not apparently linked to the mutineers, but he stayed silent during the coup, not using his considerable mana to publicly chastise the mutineers. Fiji would subsequently be bedeviled by other coups and was once even described as cuckoo land. Rautumara was appointed president in 1992, from which perch he was able to observe his beloved country deteriorate, both politically and economically. He died in 2004. He said before he died, Looking back 50 years to my days at Otago, time and again I've regretted I didn't complete medicine. And I think if I did complete medicine, I would have opted out of administration. My ambition, as well as becoming a doctor, was to be a district commissioner and district medical officer. That was my ambition. When I got there, the government would provide a boat and I would visit all the islands and be a doctor and also a magistrate. What more do you want? This is Moses coming down from heaven. The career of Dr. Saddam Davis, the future Prime Minister of the Cook Islands, was a little different. He was educated at the secondary school in New Zealand, and in 1945, he became the first Cook Islander to qualify as a medical doctor at Otago University. But getting there in the first place from what was then a New Zealand-administered semi-colonial territory was not easy. They didn't think it was a good idea to have an educated Cook Islander come back in an important role. I'm afraid that was the opinion at the time. I had seen evidence of that when I was getting ready to study medicine, and they told my family I shouldn't go to Otago University but to the Fiji School of Medicine, which provided a lower level of education. They felt it would keep me on the right track, as it were. I rebelled and said I would do a full medical course or nothing at all. I had to work my way through, which wasn't easy, but I managed it. Tom Davis saw a continuation of colonial attitudes when on graduation he applied for a job in the Cook Islands Health Service. They turned him down, but he was nothing if not persistent. The fifth time he applied, he was appointed. Once he arrived in the Cooks, his problems continued. In 1948, he was promoted to Chief Medical Officer but was not allowed to live in the living quarters that had been provided for Europeans filling that post. He was told to live at home instead. 
a decision he put down to what he calls sheer racism. I had to suffer a fair bit of that. I was asked by the resident commissioner not to worry so much about sick people. I was spending too much money. Eventually, it made me think we really needed to be free of this. Our people had much more intelligence than they were being credited with. They were being trampled on. But I have to say New Zealand supported my medical program fully. I started with a budget of 12,000 to 15,000 pounds and within three years it was 45,000 pounds and we had a good medical service. His next stop was at the Harvard School of Public Health where he taught and researched the medical aspects of living in space as well as in heat and cold. He was to spend 20 years in the United States and in that time worked at Cape Canaveral for NASA as part of the Apollo moon landing program. The Cook Islands resident commissioner had told him when he left that he would never get a job back there again. In other words, he would never again work as a doctor in the country of his birth. He was told, in fact, that the New Zealand Prime Minister, Walter Nash, did not like him. Then came a breakthrough. In 1965, he heard about the choice of self-government back home and the election of Albert Henry's Cook Islands party. Three years after independence, he headed back to the Cooks. Davis formed the Democratic Party in 1972 and, after losing several elections, finally ascended to the Prime Ministership in 1978 and was knighted three years later. After fighting against the paternalism of the New Zealand government for a long period, the Cooks finally got control over its economy and effectively gained control of its foreign affairs policy. Sir Tom retired from politics and died in 2007. It is something of an eye-opener to see how New Zealand was regarded for much of this period. Sir Tom again. I've always loved New Zealand, but any country with a colony treats it in the way they treated us. Look back in Polynesian history, the Tongans, the Samoans, the Tahitians. They've all been climbed over. Look back to the Romans. They did it, and New Zealand didn't act any differently from the Romans. It's the nature of colonial power, and it's no surprise that during those years Cook Islanders lost a sense of their worth. It's not all corrected yet, but 90% of the people really believe in themselves. They have self-esteem. They do things their own way. I'm grateful for much of this material to Ian Johnson and Malcolm Powells and their book, New Flags Flying, Pacific Leadership. This is Bill Southworth for Heritage Matters. In the 1870s, David and George Proudfoot were prominent engineers in the Dunedin area. They built the Ross Creek Reservoir, the railway line between Dunedin and Port Chalmers, and other branch rail lines throughout the South Island. As Gregor Campbell reports, they made a lot of money, and with that money came influence. In September 1877, however, all the influence in the world did not prevent George Proudfoot from being arrested and charged with a sexual assault of his 17-year-old servant, Isabella Angus. He stood trial twice, each time without a result. Revealed with the evidence against George were the offers of money to Isabella's father to stop the prosecution, including an offer of £3,000, over $400,000 today, as a dowry, a bride price, for Isabella to marry George, although he already had a wife. The prosecution was eventually abandoned after the second trial, prompting accusations of one law for the rich in many contemporary newspapers. One of the many commentaries on the situation 
was the following masterpiece of Victorian sarcasm from the Christchurch Star. A series of paragraphs have been in circulation amongst our southern contemporaries on the subject of the well-known Proudfoot case, which we trust, for the credit of colonial justice, are not true. The gist of the statements made is that the prosecution in the case of the Queen v Proudfoot has been withdrawn on the accused paying all expenses and a further £1,500, and that the principal witness in the case, Isabella Angus, had left for London in the ship Invercargill under a fictitious name. At first, we were disposed to discredit these reports, but a fortnight having gone by since they were put into circulation, and no contradiction having appeared beyond one on a minor point by Mr Denniston, the solicitor, who denied that his firm were instructed to stop proceedings, but admitted that such a course was likely, we fear that they must now be regarded as substantially true. The effect of this, regarded from one point of view, will be that this Proudfoot, twice tried for rape upon his servant girl and twice unvindicated and uncondemned through the disagreements of two juries of his intelligent countrymen, will have no further opportunity of being declared the innocent victim of an unhappy conjunction of circumstances. The magnanimous offer which he was stated in evidence to have made to marry the girl, although there was a legal impediment in the way, the other offer similarly sworn to, to pay her father a round sum to hush the matter up, coupled with the present allegations that he has now undertaken to pay all expenses and something considerable besides, will inevitably prejudice the public mind against him and make people disinclined to believe him an innocent man. Those offers, supposing they were made purely with the object of sparing an unfortunate girl's feelings, exhibited an extravagance of generosity so inapproachable and even conceivable by ordinary people, and might, on the other hand, to a plain person unstudied in abnormal developments of self-forgetful virtue, where such an apparently questionable aspect that it cannot be wondered at if Mr Proudfoot's very stupendous generosity leaves ordinary minds no alternative but to pronounce him a perfect maniac of chivalry, leaving, of course, the impediment alluded to out of the question, or an almost self-confessed criminal. What will be the popular verdict when such an alternative is presented? We need not discuss. But the worst feature of the case is not that Mr Proudfoot should be allowed to make a presumably noble self-sacrifice, but that this conclusion should be permitted in a case which is, from its circumstances, so liable to misconstruction. It is a shame that he, if he is innocent, should not be righted before the world, however willing he might be to forego that advantage. But it is a grievous discredit to the colony that a prosecution of this nature should be discontinued through the influence of any monetary arrangement whatever. We may draw inferences indeed from such abstracts of the evidence as were published, 
But any opinion as to the guilt or innocence of the accused would be beside the issue. What we wish to point out is that, though the innocence of an accused person may be as plain as daylight, it would be an evil custom which allowed the prosecution or non-prosecution of a case of this nature, which had gone so far, to depend on any kind of covenant as to expenses between accused and accuser. But when a person's innocence is so much in doubt that two juries have disagreed and been discharged without finding a verdict on the subject, it is a pernicious precedent to establish that the Crown will entertain any such covenant as a possible influencing motive in withdrawing from the further prosecution of the supposed offender, judged from a common-sense point of view, and without for a moment expressing an opinion on the merits of the case, or the extent to which the Department of Justice has been cognizant of the negotiations and proceedings of the parties most interested, we must say that if the statements we have referred to are true, the end of this cause celebre will present to the vulgar mind as disgraceful a subordination of justice to the power of the purse as was ever witnessed in the British dominions, and that the effect of it, unless intelligibly explained, cannot but be to bring into further contempt the already too much and too often reasonably despised course of criminal procedure in New Zealand. I am the never-sarcastic Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. Years ago, Dunedin ran many orphanages, both state and private ones. Judy Southworth discovered they housed a variety of young people, including children who were not really orphans at all. From the later part of the 19th century, Dunedin had many church and state institutions for children. Most children were housed in so-called orphanages, but many were not orphans, but rather children from families with difficulties of various sorts. Some were illegitimate, and the mothers were unable to both work and take care of them. Others had parents in prison or with alcohol problems. Some were removed from the homes of prostitutes. Some were just neglected by their parents, while some had behavioural problems which their parents couldn't manage. Some children lived in homes temporarily until their family problems had been solved, while others lived there until they reached adulthood. The first children's homes were not purpose-built, but were charitable institutions housing both adults and children. Later, the government developed industrial schools for neglected and criminal children. In the late 19th century, government policy was to board out or foster neglected or orphaned children. As government institutions for children became smaller as the number of them grew, churches and other charitable groups began to open orphanages and children's homes. What follows is a summary of these institutions. The Otago Benevolent Institution in Caversham. Opened in 1866, it took both children and the elderly. It had its own school. Later, it became solely a home for the elderly with a move to foster care for children, It closed in 1896. The Industrial School in Caversham. Opened in 1869, we did an earlier programme on this school, 
briefly then, children were admitted from the age of two years and those staying long term were encouraged into trade apprenticeships or farm or domestic work. The focus was on children either in need or who committed offences. The school was managed by the police department and later the Department of Justice. It was closed in 1927. The Dunedin Boys' Home. Opened in 1827, it was originally known as the Boys' Receiving Home. The role of receiving homes was to admit children and screen them for suitable placement elsewhere. It closed as the Dunedin Boys' Home in 1991. Elliott Street Home in Anderson's Bay. Opened in 1921, this home served a variety of purposes. It began as a boys' probation home and was such until it became the Dunedin Girls' Receiving Home. Like the Dunedin Boys' Receiving Home, it admitted children for screening and moving them on for suitable placement. In 1972, the newly formed Department of Social Welfare took over the responsibility for child welfare from the Department of Education. Elliott Street then provided remand facilities and short-term training for girls aged 10 to 17. The home closed in 1989, but it reopened in 1991 as a new mixed-sex home. The site also housed Highcliffe High School. It closed again in 1996. The Dunedin Family Home In the 1950s, the government started a new policy for family homes, The Child Welfare Division purchased large houses which were run by married couples who cared for several children. They were seen as an intermediate step before discharge back into the community. Around 1990, when services were being reorganised, the Dunedin Family Home became the Youth Justice Forest Centre and was responsible for youth justice activities in the area, providing short-term care. Campbell Park School and Otakaike Special School the Otakaika Special School opened as a residential school for boys in 1908. It was situated on 342 acres of land in the Waitaki Valley with a homestead. Run by the Education Department, its administration was moved to the newly formed Child Welfare Division in 1925 and renamed Campbell Park School. It was the first measure taken by the government to cater for developmentally delayed children. By the 1980s, most boys were between 9 and 16 years. The school closed in 1987. The churches also ran children's homes. The Salvation Army had three in Dunedin, the Earl's Home in Middlemarch, which opened in 1905 and catered for 36 girls, closing in 1921, the Anderson's Bay Orphanage, opening in 1919 at Vauxhall, known as The Anchorage, housing both boys and girls, and the girls' industrial home acting as a probation hostel, with most of the girls referred to by the courts, closing in 1941, and the young women's industrial home in Cavisham, which closed in 1937. The Anglicans also administered homes. St Mary's Orphan Home, opened in 1883, was driven by Mary Neville, wife of the Anglican bishop. It started as a home close to the bishop's Leith Valley residence and housed 14 children. In 1904, the Anglican Deaconess Institute took charge and the children were moved to the Grange in Leith Street. In 1924, the home again moved, this time to Mornington. Most of the residents were girls with only a few boys. The home closed in 1933. The Anglican Memorial Home opened in 1918 at Vauxhall. Money for this home was raised by the Anglican War Memorial Project. 
Originally for boys, girls were later admitted. By 1960, the home was falling into disrepair and finally closed in 1972. The Children's Rest Home was founded in 1918 by Sydney Dunkley and was situated at Anderson's Bay. It was to temporarily house children of sick mothers. They could cater for 30 children. In 1931, Dunkley purchased homes in Mornington, Cumberland Street and Roslyn. The latter, called the Hilljack Memorial Home, was taken over by the government in 1944 and it became a returned soldiers' hospital. The Catholic Church had two homes between 1898 and 1955. The Vincent de Paul Orphanage for Girls was next to St Patrick's Basilica in South Dunedin. It housed about 70 girls and later accepted boys. It closed in 1955. St Joseph's Boys Home was at Waverley, opening in 1920 and ran until 1982. From 1983 to 88, the buildings were used as emergency accommodation for women and girls. Finally, the Presbyterian set up five orphanages in Otago. The Presbyterian Orphanage and Children's Home opened in 1917, moving to Grant Sprays in 1908, housed 30 children, and in 1913, Glendinning Home opened and younger children were moved there. The Presbyterian Boys' Home was originally housed in Clyde Street in 1907, but later became a hostel for working boys. About 20 boys lived there until it closed in 1921. The Glendinning home was opened in 1913 by Robert Glendinning. This home had a farm attached, which supplied milk for all the Presbyterian children's homes. About 70 children were living there in 1916. As the move to place children in smaller family homes grew, this home was demolished in 1976. But the smaller cottages in the complex were developed into family home units. These two were eventually closed in 1991. Nisbet Home in Grants Braes housed about 10 children between 1920 and 1928 when it closed. Marama House in Lawrence opened in 1942 and housed up to 24 children. It was used as a holiday house for Dunedin children and in 1964 was converted into a family home, finally closing in 1973. In recent years, Accusations of sexual and physical abuse have been levelled at several of these homes with some convictions. The welfare of children is now given over to Oranga Tamariki, the Ministry for Children, who are now responsible for the ongoing well-being of children in New Zealand. It too is now under scrutiny for its practice of uplifting newborn babies from their mothers. The emphasis is now shifting to supporting families to stay together in order to break negative intergenerational cycles. This is Judy Southworth for Heritage Matters. This program will be repeated next Sunday at 7 o'clock. It was brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.